0: Hey friends, my name is Christine Chappell and you're listening to the Hope and Help podcast from the Institute for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship, where we host biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. In this episode, I chat with Michael Gambola about his book, Anxious About Decisions, Finding Freedom in the Peace of God. For more help on the topics we discussed today, visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help where you can access notes from today's episode and browse related resources from our digital library. Before we get started, let me introduce you to our guest. Michael Gambola is an ordained minister and licensed professional counselor. He serves as Executive Director of Blue Ridge Christian Counseling in Southwest Virginia and has taught counseling as an adjunct professor at several seminaries. In addition to the book we're talking about today, Michael is also the author of After an Affair, Pursuing Restoration. He and his wife Kelly live in Roanoke, Virginia with their two sons and daughter. Hey there, Michael. Thank you so much for joining us again on the Hope and Help podcast. It's great to have you here.
1: Thanks. Glad to be here.
0: I wondered if you might spend a few minutes before we get started in our conversation sharing a little bit about this book that we're talking about today. It's called Anxious About Decisions Finding Freedom in the Peace of God. Can you tell us a bit about why you wanted to write a book on this topic?
1: Sure. I mean, a lot of what I write tends to come from either counseling issue that is kind of thorny or, or difficult, something I see in a lot of the people I'm providing care for, uh, or something that I personally am not sure what to do with. And in this case, it's a little bit of both. So understanding the common challenges of making good decisions, of kind of making peace with decisions you have made, uh, those are all things that I've experienced to some degree myself. And then especially working with a young adults in these kind of career trajectory or marriage Uh, big decisions. Just spending a lot of time with people there gave me a sense that people could use a little bit of extra help focused on decision anxiety.
0: Yeah, well, I'm glad you actually just said the term decision anxiety because you made the distinction early on in the book that this particular book is not just about how to make godly decisions, but this book is specific to the struggle of decision anxiety, as you said. And so I wondered if you could explain what that term means.
1: Well, it's not a technical term, you know, so it's not something you're going to look up in the dictionary or find any diagnostic manuals. Uh, But it is something that I noticed a problem with, and at least a gap in a lot of the existing literature, like you said. So a great example of a good book that helps you think about making good decisions as a believer, as J.I. Packer's Finding God's Will. And he lists several things that tend to be present when someone's not making good decisions. So he talks about not being willing to think or to think, not thinking ahead or not being willing to take advice or not being willing to suspect yourself. And as I was looking through that as like this, again, really helpful, really good standard approach to the will of God and decision-making. And I thought, you know, that's the opposite of what I see in people who really are just knotted up in decision anxiety. So instead of like not being willing to think they overthink everything, Uh, instead of not thinking ahead, they think ahead about every possibility so much that they can't uh, move ahead. They get paralyzed. Uh, and then the opposite of, not getting enough advice, they try to get advice from everyone. Just the presentation of what anxiety tends to look like in the decision-making process, at least on the end of the spectrum, that looks a little bit more like OCD, like this kind of obsessive, ruminative uh, struggle. It just was really different than what most of the Will of God books I was coming across would tackle.
0: I thought it was really neat that you had a statement, again, early on in the book, where you said, quote, decision making is an arena for spiritual formation. And I guess I just had never really thought of it, like took the time to think of decision making that way. But once you said it, it really made a lot of sense. And so I wondered if maybe you could explain what you mean by that statement.
1: Well, with any anxiety, there, it, it invites you to the past, fail, black and white mentality. And if you're talking about discipleship or spiritual formation or maturing in Christ, you're looking at things that are more like a trajectory or more like a process. And that that in some ways is a counterintuitive way to look at decision making because once the decision is made, it is made, either made or not made. It's not really, you know, this ongoing process, especially the big decision. Uh, but on the other hand, most decisions, especially the small ones day in, day out, you know, we're gonna do imperfectly. It, it is a skill that we're developing. And honestly, even the big decisions, you know, like, I don't know, someone deciding whether to change jobs, make a career. That's not going to be a one moment in time decision. It will be a thousand small decisions that you can get better, uh, if you be, get better at and you can grow in trusting the Lord through.
0: You also explain in the book that while it's good to recognize danger and exercise caution when appropriate, that... Quote, when anxiety takes control, it becomes a mission to eradicate risk. So why is that true specific to the decision-making process?
1: Here, I was thinking of people I've walked with who had more OCD-like experiences. And I believe the principle here is you can have too much of a good thing. You know, you're aware of dangers. Uh, Proverbs, of course, says the prudent sees the danger and hides himself in the simple path on not punished. And so it's wise to see dangers coming, to look out ahead and see risks. But if you're totally preoccupied with the risks ahead, it's really impossible to do much of anything. And so you do get this kind of paralysis. And anxiety, when it just goes out of control, you end up trying to locate all those risks, or at least the mode is you're discovering all the risk and you're trying to eradicate it. And the fact that you can't eradicate it becomes really distressing. It's kind of the... The picture of what OCD looks like. With decision-making, it, it looks like, you know, I want to make a good decision, and I see all these potential risks, and I need to resolve each of those risks before I can make the decision. And that's where you get stuck, is in the eradicating risk. You know, the opposite, which I'm kind of holding forth as the way forward, is the reasonable acceptance of risk. And the more relational way to say that, the more spiritual way to say that, is the acceptance of trust.
0: I liked when you wrote uh, in that same chapter, you said, quote, when you begin to live dominated by the need to get rid of uncertainty and only make choices that don't involve risk, you gradually lose the ability to function in life. I thought that was really insightful, again, because I guess I never really thought about it that way But you also help us to think about, well, you know, maybe if we're aware that we have this problem, then there's like what you call a one-two punch. So we have the anxiety about making the decision, but then the self-loathing about not being able to make a decision.
1: Right, I've seen that a lot where people will get caught up in a decision and be really stuck for a long period of time and then get really mad at themselves for being stuck. Here, I'm mostly concerned that you know, this is a self flagellating, this is a self condemning, accusing voice in your head that's just not worth listening to much. Certainly, taking stock and appreciating where our weaknesses are and where we need to grow, that's fine. But when you're really struggling, when you're feeling uh, caught, beating yourself up about it uh, tends to only make it worse and make you feel even more discouraged. Then it's hard to actually marshal what little resources you have to turn to the Lord, turn to others engage again in the decision-making process.
0: Well, I really love how you throughout the book continue to help us kind of untie some of the knots and the tangles that get us tripped up in our decision-making. In chapter two, you suggest that, quote, the first step in getting past decision anxiety is to stop using the old ways we've tried to find rest. Can you share briefly the four counterproductive practices we might use to seek assurance and rest when experiencing this kind of anxiety?
1: Sure. The first one we've already talked about actually is is overthinking. And uh, here I'm thinking of the tendency to mark a list, cross some things off the list, cross option, options off, let go of certain options, but then uh, go back and say, well, maybe I shouldn't have crossed one of those off. And you put them back on and and basically, you're overextending the process by the painful work of cutting off decisions. I think in that section of the book, I talk about how the etymology of decision actually is uh, the word to cut, to cut off, and the history of the word rather than the present meaning. But it's a fitting history that, that you feel the pinch, you feel the cut of losing options. Um, there's a pastor I know of that, he uses use the phrase, the idolatry of options. And specifically, when, for example, a person is dating multiple people at the same time for too long, and it's really unloving to those people, but the the temptation to hang on to options uh, because it's painful to lose that, it ends up being not just problematic for making good decisions, but hurtful to other people. So that's overthinking. I also talk about overconsulting, which I mentioned earlier as well, getting too much advice from too many people, overchecking, which is kind of this monitoring of your feelings with too much sensitivity. I mean, what I'm thinking of here is, you know, do, do I like doing this for a living or do I like spending time with this person? Those are fine questions to ask. But if you're asking that the whole time you're doing anything, it's hard to actually be present and engage. So if I'm constantly asking, uh, do I like being on the state with this person, you've kind of pulled yourself out of the actual experience of, of getting to know someone. So Yes, being aware of our emotions is really important, but this kind of overfixation on how did I feel, did I feel confident enough, do I feel peace enough about decisions, generally is not going to take us in a great direction. The last problem is over-escaping. Uh, and here I'm distinguishing between what I like to call uh, godly distraction, which is uh, you know willingness to turn your brain off a little bit, to actually rest, to so not feel like you're always having to be productive. That's fine. But delaying decisions too long, sometimes in the stereotypical ways of like video games or things more severe like alcohol, those are ways to escape. Uh, but also, there are perhaps more acceptable ways, like just digging into the work of today so much that you never get thought to the tomorrow. Uh, those are those are ways that we can escape the decision-making process uh, and the, the necessary pain involved in the decision.
0: It's funny that you mention about escape uh, because on the podcast, I have also interviewed Rush Witt, who also contributed to this series that this particular book you just wrote is a part of the Ask the Christian Counselor series. And his book is about our tendency to escape when life seems like it's too much when we feel overwhelmed perhaps by the decisions that we need to make uh, or that the decisions that are weighing on us so thank you for for helping us think through not only that particular counterproductive practice but the other ways that we might try to find rest apart from turning to the lord uh, in the midst of our anxiety I really appreciate how you bring our desire to know God's will into view. You mentioned that at the beginning of our conversation with regards to the J.I. Packer book that you were talking about. But in this book, you write that, quote, anxiety about decisions is hard on its own, but sometimes confusion about God's will makes the experience even worse. You explain that in our desire to know God's will for the decisions we face, we might lean toward one of two perspectives, either a mystical view of God's guidance or a magical view of it. Can you explain what you mean by these mystical and magical viewpoints?
1: I got those categories from uh, Herman Bavink, uh, and he's he's a theologian. He's talking about God's means of grace for us. And what I'm looking for there or what I'm looking at there is that for some believers who tend more in the mystical direction, it's it's the desire for this unmediated gift of a decision or almost God stepping in and making a decision for us by a particular emotion or an impression. But basically that in our quiet time with the Lord, he'll, he'll move directly to you and make the decision. I'm not seeking to deny what's possible to God or say he will never do that, but I'm holding out that that's not, at the very least that's not the normal way that he guides most of us. And most of us don't think of God working in that way when we're trying to decide what to order off the menu. Right? So we, we know that there are some decisions that God has put in our stewardship that he does expect us to make in, in our process of growth and wisdom, not waiting on him to give us an answer on most things. Now, The magical view, this over-reliance on a single means or method that God would lead us through. So for example, one person said, you'd be really great at that job, or you have a very particular experience in a a specific worship service where you felt called to something, or maybe even someone told you that you were called to this job. And so there's this, this sense that that one piece of information has this magical power to give you the right answer. And that's just not how most of life works. Uh, We don't look for this unmediated experience of God where he makes our decisions for us, uh, nor do we cast the fleece as the typical metaphor we use, right, from Gideon's story, where we say, okay, we know God has stepped in to make this decision for us through this specific method. Both of those are ways that we kind of evade having to actually make decisions. And that's not said in a judgmental way. It's talking about these things being scary and very consequential. Uh, But those are ways that we can feel mixed up and confused about what God might be doing in this situation.
0: Michael, I really love how you said the word in your answer just now, stewardship, because that's actually a term that you use often in this particular book. And as you were talking, it made me think of way back in Genesis when God created Adam and then gave him the job to make decisions about what to call the animals. Genesis 2, 19 word says, now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So just a really neat example early on, right at the beginning of God giving to man the chance to exercise choices under his wisdom and his guidance. And so I wonder if you could maybe help us think a little bit more about the stewardship that God has given to us and the freedom to make decisions.
1: I like that example because that's exactly what I'm drawing from in the book is the original calling of people, of humanity, to be little kings and queens or vice regents in God's creation. There's a tremendous amount written about what exactly the image of God means in Genesis. But one of the common points that's made is that in the ancient times, kings would set up images of themselves in their land to basically be kind of a proxy for their rule in the land. And there may be a piece of this in how Adam and Eve are placed in the garden and called to basically be God's representative rulers. And to actually exercise that rule means that you're making decisions. So built into the creation, to order, arrange, to subdue uh, the creation, built into that order is the humanity making decisions. Uh, Subject to God, uh, dependent on Him, trusting Him in everything, but making real decisions, not waiting for Him to intervene on every decision.
0: Now, there's three major parts in this book, and part two of the book considers the ways that culture or upbringing can sometimes influence us with, quote, less helpful messages about what we should fear and how we should seek safety. You say that uncovering these kinds of influences can help us answer them with truth. So while we can't dive into all that you cover about this topic in this conversation, I'd love for you to share a few examples of how culture and maybe even our family can influence our decision-making and then how the scriptures teach us to think about these influences.
1: Uh, Two that come to mind are opposite messages. One is that we trust you with everything. And the other is we trust you with nothing. So the trust you with everything message is basically that the world is yours to create. Uh, Your life is yours to craft. So make it interesting, make it good, make your mark, uh, be someone, uh, do something special. Uh, Tremendous amount of pressure on people to discover uh, deep within ourselves, a uh, authentic version of us that we then have to find ways to express and to draw out. And all this is a significant pressure uh, to, to make a meaningful life. And I talk about that as basically a, uh, to some degree, modern a phenomenon, because you imagine if you grew up in a village where you mostly stayed in your whole life, there weren't a whole lot of options for what to do for a living, and there weren't a whole lot of options for who to marry. And so that there wasn't quite... I don't imagine there was quite the same temptation toward limitlessness or try to live as though you really can be or do anything and not to live within kind of the actual good limits and flourish and thrive within limits. Uh, I don't think there's any golden age, but I also think that each age has challenges. And this is one of them. is that pressure to endlessly self-create, self-optimize, I think is Alan Noble's way of putting it in You Are Not Grown. But there are, there are a lot of books that are tackling this right now The temptation toward uh, individualism in this hyper uh, individualistic world. The opposite side is we we trust you with nothing, which is basically, you know, we know what's best for you. Trust us to make the decisions for you, which maybe no one says, but certainly if you grew up in an environment where you're in the orbit of a very strong or influential personality, you can get used to not really trusting yourself to make decisions. Uh, If you're making decisions largely through the eyes of others for a significant amount of your upbringing, it's easy to imagine them not being entirely free to even order something off the menu. You know, what do I like? What do I think is a good decision? Not how are people around me going to react to my decision? This is a significant pressure, I think, in a lot of people uh, who struggle with decision anxiety. But it's uh, there, there's room to mature past that, right? To, to actually come to opinion, to come to preferences, to be comfortable with actually making and leaving footprints.
0: I also really was surprised, I guess I just wasn't expecting to see that even in this particular section of the book, you point out the bulldozer parenting style or the helicopter parenting style. You write, quote, that more recently, parenting scholars have identified a trend that they call bulldozer parenting, where parents get rid of obstacles, make big decisions for their older kids, and accomplish tasks for them, clearing the way for their success. You can imagine that this kind of attitude toward parenting doesn't foster in children a sense of agency and confidence that they can set good goals, make hard decisions, and accomplish things. Rather, well-meaning parents may, by their very efforts, inhibit these important attributes from developing.
1: In an earlier version of the of the book or earlier draft, I think I had the story of uh, the college admissions scandal, and I ended up not using it. I don't think, but it, you know, a really powerful uh, public example of we're going to engage in direct bribery to get our kids into these great schools. That impulse is there in lots of small ways too.
0: So Michael then recognizing these unhelpful messages can you and I I know you can't go into detail here in this conversation but how then do the scriptures help us to think differently or contrarily to the messages or the influences that have shaped us
1: if the message is you know we trusted you with nothing or we trusted you with everything if those are some of the common lies or you know bad perspectives then the scriptures Pretty good with setting a balance there of being entrusted with some things, but not everything. So to be human means that you you actually are entrusted with quite a few decisions, with a life, with time, with relationships, and yet we are not God, so we we're not entrusted with everything. We don't actually have a lot of control. So uh, a couple examples would be Galatians six, where we're called to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, but then in the same passage it says nevertheless each one carries his own load. And so you get that balance of uh, we're responsible for each other, but we also each have individual responsibility. And so there's 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 really a mix. There's also uh, language of entrusting. So you know Paul uses when he's talking about his apostolic calling that he's been trusted with this task, this calling, uh, steward of the mysteries. There are aspects of calling that are entrusted to us without us being essential to the whole big picture. We can have a sense. Of the mercy of our own smallness, or the grace of our own smallness, that you know we, we actually don't have to save the world or change the world. We we have permission to be something smaller. Now the opposite message is true as well: is you you're free then to to make a make a significant impact, uh, to to leave your mark, to engage in good things without the over responsibility of having to uh, give your attention to things too high or too lofty for ourselves.
0: That's from Psalm one thirty one, right?
1: Yeah. 131.
0: Yeah, I love love that song. It's tiny yet mighty. Um, so yes. very, very good and totally relevant to this particular conversation. Now, in this very last part of the book, we've had a good amount of time in this conversation really Dissecting what decision anxiety is, some of the influences, how it might manifest in our daily life. But the last part of the book is really where you start to bring in the okay, well, what do we do then? (laughs) You know, what are we supposed to do? We still have these decisions to make. So, how can we take our next step? You address specific arenas of decision anxiety, such as marriage, vocation, and what you call, quote, plans, purchases, and other small stuff. So, while we don't have time to explore all of these arenas, I would like to consider what some might call, quote, sweating the small stuff. And in this chapter, you explain what this might look like in everyday life and then offer three helpful reflection points for viewing decision making as both an act of faith. And a life skill. So, will you explain what it might look like to quote sweat the small stuff, and then give guidance for how we can practice the skill of decision making?
1: Yeah, there there are a lot of ways that we can get caught here. I think the one I've mentioned a few times today already is getting stuck. You know, and everyone's ordered off the menu and you're at a restaurant and you're the last one and you can't decide, or other ones would be. You know, you're, I remember one time I was at the hardware store and. There were like seven different kinds of toilet flushers. And I thought, you know, like, does it really matter if I spend one or two dollars less or more? And why are there so many options of the exact same thing? And should I care? You know, or, or you know, or worse, you know, it's, oh, shoot, I don't remember what it actually looks like. You know, I'm going to buy the wrong one and I'm going to have to come right back here. But there are things like that that pop up a lot. And for most people, it's just an irritation. But for some people, it really is more than an irritation. It's actually a significant interruption to life. And so I'm trying to speak to that fuller range uh, of person uh, who, of the person who sweats the small stuff, like you said. So what I'm looking at as ways to reframe or to change your perspective or to actually engage the, uh, in the solving of the problem, I look at a few areas. Uh, one is to accept the uh, risk of, sm- of making a bad decision. So, for example, you know, if you're ordering off the menu, it's okay. If I want to change, I actually have to risk making a bad decision. Like I, I may actually deal with the consequence of this. And uh, if you're willing to face the consequence, then the anxiety doesn't have as much power. Like If you've emotionally prepared yourself to regret your meal, <laughs> you actually have a little bit less uh, – anxiety has a little bit less sway. Now, for other people, of course, I talked about the one-two punch, right? you have all this anxiety leading up and then you regret it for the next 30 minutes. But accepting it as part of the risk, being willing to take that on for even the small stuff uh, is necessary as part of the progress. The other point I make is that uh, skill building requires accepting our own imperfection. And this is just true of every single skill that we would learn. I use the analogy of basketball. To get better at shooting baskets, you prepare yourself that you're going to miss a lot. And I think I say something about the best players in games miss about half their shots. And like, that's really excellent work, is missing half your shots. So knowing that you're going to miss a lot, uh, not being surprised by it, not being frustrated by it, knowing that's part of building a skill, sets you up to making perfect decisions. The last point I make is that skill requires incremental progress. And again, the analogy of basketball, or you could use the analogy of learning to play an instrument. We know that progress is incremental. And actually, this is how the rest of Christian growth works, too. Very rarely do we have these Damascus Road moments like the Apostle Paul where we all of a sudden see the light and everything's different. Sometimes in God's kindness, we actually do feel big moments of breakthrough. But the more typical way that we grow is incremental progress. Knowing that that's the case kind of prepares you to not look at decisions as a pass-fail situation, but rather a a one-step-at-a-time decision. And that's really tough to do on something big. Uh, we're talking about something small, of course. But I say that actually the big decisions are actually made up of small decisions too. So while the decision to get married is a huge one, the decision to go on one date is not, it's actually not that big a deal. And so accepting that, okay, this is an incremental step in being a good decision maker, making a good big decision, uh, accepting the imperfection of those small steps, being willing to take the risk of that small step and being willing to get better at it over time actually frees you to live life.
0: Michael, I wonder if you in the counseling room face situations when someone is afraid of making a decision that is somehow outside of God's will. You know, sometimes I'll say, how can I know for sure this is what God has for me? Uh, you know, so they'll talk about it in that particular way. So how do you help those people who are wrestling with that type of a question?
1: What I say in the book is that there are moral and non-moral decisions, not meaning that some things exist out of a moral framework, but meaning that some things are right and wrong. If The question is whether to steal money or not. Of course, we have a very clear answer from God, right? We don't have clear answers from God for other things, though. Typically, when we make a job decision, like a big career change, it's working on probabilities and best guesses and judgment calls. Usually you're trying to make a decision out of a few good options, and that, those are often the hardest decisions to make, decisions that, on the surface, do not look moral or immoral. It's a choice between better and better, better and best, or better and maybe slightly better than the other option, and you're not sure. And usually that's, that's where people get stuck. And the belief that God secretly wants you to pick one over the other is not super helpful in this, in this regard. There are ways that our arrogance or our own self-importance might shade our decisions in, in problematic ways. Uh, there are ways that we are too influenced by the opinions of others or not influenced enough by the opinions of others that might lead us to one decision over another. But again, accepting that we're going to make an imperfect decision uh, frees us a little bit to say, if God wanted us to know very clearly, uh, he would tell us. <laughs> And especially in his word, he would make it really clear if there was a morally right will of God decision to be made. But the view I I would endorse would be that God has a secret will that we actually don't know, that there are a lot of things about the world, about what's going to happen that we just don't have knowledge of because we're not him. We're not God. We're the creation. We're not the creator.
0: Yeah, he doesn't have a plan B for us, right? It's all all plan A from his perspective, perhaps not necessarily from our perspective. We don't understand it that way all the time. Thank you for letting me just kind of throw that at you here at the tail end because I think I can recognize even that in my own experience of I want to be sure I'm doing the right thing. Well, we've got time for a couple of more questions. So before we close out our conversation today, Would you offer us some practical steps that we might immediately take if decision anxiety is something that we're battling through?
1: I mentioned the principle of godly distraction. Uh, Another way to put that is that ruminating, overthinking is not actually going to lead to a better decision. So setting a time to work on the big decision, if it's a big one, uh, is good, is wise. Not viewing it as the thing that has to be thought of constantly until the decision needs to be made. I also want people to steward mental space well. One of the things I've been concerned about that, actually, I think I got this originally from Richard Baxter and his advice to the melancholy, was that people who tend to ruminate or get stuck in anxious thoughts a lot often struggle with silent prayer, but they do a little bit better with prayer aloud with others uh, or reading scripture aloud, but not giving their minds a whole lot of room to follow rabbit trails of potential risks and dangers, uh, but to give special attention to relational prayer, both to God and also with others, and also giving yourself, as I said, breaks. Um, One other consideration I've given is to start tackling the smaller anxieties first. So if you've got a set of things that cause you anxiety that are relatively reliable, as in stable, you, you know the kinds of anxieties that keep popping up, to actually assign a number value to them. So some things are highly anxiety-inducing. Some things are not that anxiety-inducing. But to to try to, on purpose, do the scary thing uh, and start with the ones that are not quite as scary, but to do them on purpose. Uh, And sometimes this can be silly things, like going and making a purchase, but giving yourself five minutes to make it. And you're going to, on purpose, do this because this is an area you need to work on. And uh, you set your time, You keep to the time and you fight the ruminating or the second guessing as best you can. So those are just very small, practical, immediate steps. I think I have a few others in that section of the book as well.
0: Well, we're just about out of time, but I want to be sure to say a couple of things. So before we close off with our last question of the day, I want to let the listener know that if you are interested in learning more about Michael's book, you can scroll down to the show notes, click the link there, and that will take you to a page on IBCD's website. have all that information for you there where you can purchase the book and see more about Michael and his ministry. But before we do that, don't scroll down there yet, because I want you to hear these last encouragement. Michael, I want to invite you to do something that I ask every guest of the Hope and Help podcast to do, which is to speak directly to the audience. There may be someone listening today who finds themselves anxious about the decisions they currently need to make. What would you say to this listener to encourage them with the hope and help of Jesus Christ?
1: I'll just share one quick picture of the life of Jesus that I keep coming back to. I believe it's around Mark 6, where he makes the decision to go up to the mountain to pray, to be alone. They've hardly had time to to even take a break to eat. So he makes the decision, and then what immediately happens is he's interrupted by a human need. He's interrupted by what people are asking for from him. And in each case, he graciously steps away to actually help the people in need. And nevertheless, he keeps moving toward his father his time with his father he keeps moving keeps moving toward the mountain uh, to be alone with with the lord and similarly when we are engaging the challenges of life when we even make decisions imperfect as our decisions are we keep moving toward the good things that the lord has for us knowing that human need will get in the way when we respond with grace for others and knowing that the grace is there for us as well uh, i love that picture of jesus responsive to human need, decisive, but flexible, concerned to uh, always be about the business of his father, but knowing that while he lives under human limitations, uh, he needs rest too. So live and flourish within limit. That's my encouragement.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for those words of encouragement. And Michael, if there's someone listening today who wants to get connected with you and your ministry, where you have been a guest on the podcast before, you've written at least one other resource that I'm thinking of right now with PNR Publishing on their 31-Day Devotional Series. And so where can people connect with you online to learn more about your books and your writing
1: ministry? I work for Blue Ridge Christian Counseling. I'm the director there. And the website there is brccba.org. And we have a good overview of the kind of ministries, the training, the writing, the counseling that our organization does. So that would be a great place to look.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking time during the holiday season to talk about this very important topic. We, again, I did not have time to go into the nitty gritty of everything Michael offers. So if this is a topic of interest to you, I want to encourage you to get a copy of the book and work through it, perhaps with a friend. The chapters do have reflection questions at the end. And I hope that this book will be a blessing to you if this, if decision anxiety is something that you're struggling with today. So thank you so much, Michael, for joining us for the show. Thanks for having me. Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help. There you can check out the show notes from today's episode. If you enjoyed today's conversation, why not subscribe to the podcast? That way you'll be notified when new episodes release. Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help podcast a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help podcast.